recovery, healing, transformation, redemption, whatever terminology you use, there is a complexity to it. This isn't just about stopping a behavior. Um, if it was, people would have done it years ago. The thing that keeps us going back to it is not understanding what's driving the behavior or what the root causes are. It's kind of like mowing your lawn, thinking you're going to get rid of the weeds. It doesn't work. You know, once you cut your lawn, it looks good because anything green and short looks good. But in time, the roots will come back and bring their friends. It's going to get worse. It's not going to get better until you develop a strategy to go after the roots. So if someone talks about a sin problem, a lust problem, sexual compulsivity, whatever language they use, they need to be reminded that this is complex and it's going to take a variety of resources and a lot of effort in order to get free. Welcome to the Faithful and True Podcast. Today we have part one of a two-part series featuring Dr. Greg Miller, our director of workshops here at Faithful and True. Uh, Greg was one of the featured speakers at one of the recent betrayal healing conferences with Tammy Gustafson. And uh, today we're going to present part one of the two-part series. Here now is Dr. Greg Miller and Tammy Gustafson. Welcome, everybody. This is Tammy Gustafson with Betrayal Healing. Thanks for joining us today. I appreciate your time. And today I have Dr. Greg Miller, who is joining me. And we are going to be having a discussion about what sexual addiction is and kind of understanding it. And there's often a lot of questions that I get from my clients about, you know, what is it? Does my husband have a sexual addiction or my husband doesn't like that term? And so we're going to dive in and unpack uh, a lot of that today. But first, I want to introduce Greg. Greg received his doctorate from Emory University and started Thrive Resources with his wife, Beth, in 2011. His focus is working with individuals and couples who are struggling with various forms of addiction. And Greg has served as the director of Men's Journey Workshops with Faithful and True in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, since 2009. Greg and Beth have been married for 33 years and have two sons and a rescue dog named Lucy. Welcome, Greg. Thanks so much for coming in today. Well, thank you. And thanks for the invitation. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. So, Greg, I really appreciate this. And I know that I asked specifically to talk about this, this topic because I think it's so important for partners to have an understanding of sexual addiction and what it is and where it comes from and that. So, yeah, so I'm just, I'm looking forward to this, this conversation. And as we launch in, if we can start with, you know, what are some of the terms that you've heard people use for relational and sexual betrayal? Absolutely. And one of the things I would say is I do believe that language is important. And the key is we've heard it referred to as a sin problem, a lust problem, um, there are those therapists that would refer to it as sexual compulsivity or sexual addiction, or there are those that would refer to it as unwanted sexual behavior. So whatever language someone chooses to use, I think there are two pieces that are really important. The first is whatever language someone uses, it encourages them to take this seriously. And one of the challenges that we see a lot of times is 
if we use a casual term or a casual language, consciously and unconsciously, we may be minimizing the significance of what we've done and the choices that we've made and the injury that we've created. And so whatever language someone uses, it's important that they take it seriously because on one end of the spectrum is to minimize it, where I'm telling myself it's no big deal. I, you know, I can do this on my own. I can fix this or whatever language they use. But on the other end of this is the continuum of uh, catastrophizing. Now, one of the things that we can know is that some people, as soon as they hear about this issue, they go into some sort of catastrophic understanding. And one of the ways that we can know we're catastrophizing is if we're left with no hope. The way that I talk about hopelessness, um, hopelessness isn't when things are bad. Hopelessness is when things are bad and I can't imagine them ever getting better. So in those moments when I'm struggling maybe with hopelessness, I have to identify what is it that I believe can get better and what are those factors that maybe are beyond me that will help it get better. Maybe it's my community. Maybe it's my own personal resources. Maybe it's my own understanding of what is beyond me and transcendent. But there is something that gives me hope even in the most desperate situations. And I had a professor one time define hopelessness as not the absence of hope, but hopelessness is when I can't remember what hope is. So what are the things, the people, the circumstances, whatever, that are going to remind me of what hope can be, even when I can't find it within myself? So I want to camp there for one more minute. Thank you. That was very helpful. Now, for women, oftentimes hope can be really scary. Mm-hmm. And I know you're really talking towards the men at that point, like having a hope of, of it getting better. But for women, hope can be scary because hope is vulnerable. Right. Absolutely. Well, and one of the things I would say is sometimes we have to expand hope, uh, meaning that initially um, in the chaos of the betrayal, a woman might be afraid to hope that her husband will choose recovery, might be afraid to hope that there is merit, their, their marriage will survive. And one of the things that I believe is hope has to transcend our circumstances, because what's true is if a husband isn't committed to his own journey of transformation and redemption and recovery, however we frame that, then really it's going to limit the ability of the marriage to move forward. Well, if the the wife's only hope is that her marriage survives, then you're right. She's going to be very limited in her hope. Hope is kind of that message of no matter what. I believe that there is life beyond these circumstances. Mm. And so that's the kind of hope that I'm talking about. Yes, we want hope for our marriage. We want hope for our spouse. And yet sometimes, given the choices that they continue to make, um, we recognize that hope has to transcend those circumstances. Oh, that's so well put. I appreciate that. So I totally interrupted you and you were going to go on to number two. Yes. So So the second thing is whatever language we use, um, it has to acknowledge the complexity. You know, one of my phrases is, is if people are offering simple solutions to complex issues, they just look foolish. And so one of the things that we want people to understand is recovery, healing, transformation, redemption, whatever terminology you use, there is a complexity to it. Because if someone is engaged in a dangerous or difficult behavior, no matter what the behavior is or the substance that they're using, they need the support and the resources to stop that behavior immediately. And so at Faithful and True, we're going to talk about what are some of the behavioral changes that we can make that will create safety for yourself and for others as quickly as possible. 
The other piece, though, is we have to be willing to look at the root causes. What's driving the behavior? And I'm going to talk in a little bit about some of the principles that we teach around addiction. But one of the things to understand is that this isn't just about stopping a behavior. Um, if it was, people would have done it years ago. The thing that keeps us going back to it is not understanding what's driving the behavior or what the root causes are. Now, one of the images that I use is if this is just about stopping the behavior, it's kind of like mowing your lawn, thinking you're going to get rid of the weeds. It doesn't work. You know, once you cut your lawn, it looks good because anything green and short looks good. But in time, the roots will come back and bring their friends. It's going to get worse. It's not going to get better until you develop a strategy to go after the roots. So if someone talks about a sin problem, a lust problem, sexual compulsivity, whatever language they use, they need to be reminded that this is complex and it's going to take a variety of resources and a lot of effort in order to get free. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate the complexity there. So so tell me, how do you understand addiction and recovery? Okay. So the, the way that I talk about addiction, addiction occurs anytime we're trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way in a repetitive pattern. So there is some sort of legitimate need. And through my circumstances, through my experiences, I begin to believe that either this behavior or this substance is going to meet that legitimate need in a legitimate way. And what we know is that pattern of returning is part of what creates the chaos. And one of the sayings of AA, it's not that we couldn't stop, it's that we couldn't stay stopped. And so we work with a lot of men that can go through a month, two months, three months of sobriety, and it appears as if everything is okay, but then it returns. So it's understanding it's not just meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way in a one-time circumstance. We can look back over our lives and see that there's a repetitive pattern of that attempt. And then recover. So, oh, go ahead. So Greg, unpack a little bit or give some examples of a legitimate need of what that is in an illegitimate way. I think we got that, the sexual acting out piece, mm -hmm. but um, unpack that a little bit. And I also just want to give a caveat. So for women listening, like it's um it's important to understand this. I know we're talking about your husband's issue and whatnot, but it's important to understand it so that you have a foundation. Because I don't know how many times I've talked to wives where they see this pattern keep mm -hmm. going, and they're like, "But it seems like he stopped, and then he was doing better, and then he was leaning in, and then I leaned in." And then this started again, and it's so hurtful. Absolutely. So I think having this knowledge is power. But having said that, can you unpack the legitimate need in an illegitimate way? Oh, absolutely. So one of the examples I would use is, let's say I'm a little boy, and I'm growing up, and I'm just overwhelmed by life. Life is difficult. I go to school, and I have to sit still. I can't talk to my neighbors. I have to do homework and then I go to the playground and I don't know if I'm going to be included on the team. And then I go to the cafeteria. I don't know if I have a place to sit at a table. And then maybe I come home and there's conflict and maybe it's the yelling and screaming conflict or maybe it's the quiet, icy conflict. But either way, I go to bed at night. I'm just overwhelmed. And then what I discover is if I just hold my penis, I start to have a sense of well-being. Not because there's anything wrong with me, not because I'm a pervert, but because of the neurochemistry of sexuality and the way that God created us, there is a neurochemical that is released when I'm touched by myself or someone else touches me that just creates this sense of well-being. 
And then I discovered that if I stroke my penis, I get an erection. And then if I'm gone through puberty, I'm able to have an orgasm. And that physiological experience significantly changes my neurochemistry. And so what happens is, without even realizing it, as a little boy, I'm starting to use masturbation as my anxiety medication or my depression medication or my sleep aid. And because I'm trying to figure it out all on my own, I don't have the support that I need to understand that really I need support to know how to navigate anxiety or maybe I need some help to talk to someone about my depression. But because masturbation and sexuality is such a powerful experience, then I begin to use it in this coping strategy. So suddenly it's no longer about masturbation. It's now about my anxiety. So the next time I feel anxious, maybe even in an unconscious way, I gravitate towards some sort of sexual release. If I'm a little boy and I'm exposed to pornography and I combine that with masturbation, then maybe it can begin to try to rescue me from my insecurities, my loneliness. And again, I'm not doing this in a conscious way, but it's kind of the development that is occurring as these things come together and I'm trying to figure out life by myself. So the legitimate need is to deal with my anxiety. You know, one of the things that I often talk about to men is many of them are trying to ejaculate the emotions that they don't want to feel. So when they feel anxious, they use masturbation to ejaculate their anxiety. When they feel depressed, they don't want to feel depressed. They don't know or they don't have a strategy to healthily deal with their depression. So this becomes their strategy. Okay. So again, I interrupted. So keep going. So we're okay. talking about the understanding of addiction and recovery. Thank you for unpacking that. Yeah. So first we got to identify in recovery, what is the legitimate need? So maybe the legitimate need is to get some support around my anxiety. Um, if I'm insecure and I'm using my sexual acting out to try to rescue me from my insecurity, then maybe what I need is to some some help, some support so that I can develop in a greater sense of self that's not based upon other people's acceptance or my behaviors, but really established an identity of who I am. For people of faith, it can come from kind of celebrating the goodness of who God has created me to be. And for those that may, faith be, may not be an important part of their story, it may simply be developing a stronger sense of self that comes from the goodness of their uniqueness. But I got to get in there and figure out how have I been using my sexual behavior? You know, one of the things that we teach, and I'll talk about this in a moment, but sex addiction is not about sex. It's about how I've been using sex. And that's why it creates the chaos. You know, in a lot of marriages, some women will say, I don't know why he was acting out sexually. I was available to him. We seem to have a good sex life. But the reality, it, it's not about that. It's about these other things that he learned in childhood that he's trying to, to get these needs met. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are some reasons that you think people resist using the term sexual addiction? I, I think there are two things when it comes to the idea of addiction. The first one is there are those people who have heard the term addiction used as an excuse for their behavior. You know, I, I'm an addict. I can't help it. Um, if you're familiar with the 12 steps, the first step is I admit my powerlessness. So if someone misinterprets that, they may say, well, I'm powerless over my addiction. I can't change. And it's almost like a surrender to it. And what I believe is, yes, we are powerless in our addiction, but we are powerful in our recovery. And one of the images I use is the Death Star. I don't know if you're a Star Wars fan, but back in the 70s, when the first one came out, there was this huge machine called the Death Star. And the Death Star was created to destroy planets. That was its purpose. 
Well, there's a scene where the Millennium Falcon, one of the spaceships, is coming out of hyperspace, gets too close to the Millennium, uh, gets too close to the Death Star, and the Death Star tractor beam just pulls it in. Well, to me, addiction is the Death Star. And if you get too close to the Death Star, the power of the tractor beam just pulls you in. Part of the strategy of recovery is staying away from the Death Star, creating those boundaries, those parameters that actually create safety. But the truth is I am powerful in my own journey if I am strategic and don't go near the Death Star. You know, one of the things that we talk about is the idea of the fog of lust, where once we get in the zone of the addiction, we do lose some power over our steering, our capacity to drive away. But that is never an excuse for our behavior. At Faithful and True, we will never use a, an addiction to excuse our behavior. It's an understanding, but it's not an, a, an excuse. The other thing is, I think a lot of people are resistant to the term of addiction because they're afraid it's going to become their identity. You know, one of the principles of recovery is you go to an AA meeting or an SA meeting and you begin it by saying, hi, my name is Greg and I'm an addict. And one of the questions that I get is that, will I always be an addict? And so I want men to understand specifically it's part of their story and it's not all of their story. It's part of the truth, but it's not all of the truth. And it's never their identity. It's never who they are. And we want men to understand if I can recognize the power of addiction in my life and see the, the truth of that, then I can see the truth of who I am, which actually will lead to freedom. You know, and I think for wives, it can be really, it can be a hard pill to swallow if your husband gets to the place of saying, I am a sex addict, because there is something that just kind of happens at the core of a wife going like, oh, like that is serious and that's disgusting. Mm -hmm. Like, and I, and what, and there's, there's a shame piece of like, I don't want to be associated with that either. Right. And so... So I just want to acknowledge that. And if you have any thoughts about that, but one thing that I would say that you mentioned earlier on, and I would really agree with it is, is I am not personally, I'm not too hung up on the, on the terminology, mm -hmm. but what, but what I know is that when I see men say that they are a sex addict and acknowledge that what, what I hear is that they are acknowledging that they have a significant problem. Right. And that's the piece. There's a humility and there's almost a, a breaking there that needs to happen for them to, to do that. But one thing I would caution wives on is like you said, sometimes that term from a wife's perspective can be like, oh, well, he doesn't have any power. He can't help himself. Like, and this idea of, well, if it's an addiction, then relapse is part of recovery, which personally, I, I hate that terminology. I hate right. that saying. Um, but I think there's just so much that's wrapped up in this, in this term. Absolutely. Um, and, and part, part of it is we understand the addiction as a diagnosis. You know, several years ago, we, we have two sons and one of our sons just had some physical issues. And um, we took, I think, to 10 doctors before we got a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And what's true is when we got the diagnosis, we did not like the diagnosis. It was not good news. It wasn't, you know, this thing that you would like for your child to have. What was also true, though, is once we got the proper diagnosis, then we had the proper treatment plan, which then yeah. actually led to the healing. 
And so one of the things I want men to understand is if they are able to identify as a sex addict is actually a hopeful thing because there is a diagnosis and a treatment plan that leads to hope. You know, one of the things that happened to my son is prior to that, we were just focusing on symptoms and we were trying to address this symptom and this symptom. And maybe he got some temporary relief, but it wasn't the long-term solution we were looking for. And so for those men or wives who feel like this is kind of a, a hopeless situation and that the worst thing in the world is to be diagnosed as a, se a sex addict, I actually want them to understand that there is hope if you have the proper diagnosis, there is a treatment plan that does lead to freedom. And that's one of the things that we teach and believe. I, I also want to acknowledge what you said about the shame piece, that the idea of the shame that there goes along with being a sex addict can be huge, not just for the husband, but also for the wife. And one of the things I would say, though, is sometimes it's helpful to remind ourselves, given our circumstances, given our early experiences, um, this in some way was something, it's kind of like the death star found my husband. And one of the principles that we teach is early on sex addiction chooses us. And then at some point we choose it back. Hmm. At some point we were first exposed to something. And as a little boy, we did not have the capacity to navigate that. And so one of the things that we want to recognize is early on sex addiction chose me. It came into my life. Hmm. It was that first time I was exposed to that website or that magazine or the first time we experimented as children, but something came into my universe, it started pulling me in. And so we want to have grace with that part of us, that younger part of us that was exposed to something sexual. And we need to take responsibility for all the ways I've chosen it back. I need to take responsibility for the fact that I've used it as a way to medicate my anxiety or to and medicate my insecurities or my fears or my loneliness. And one of the principles that we teach is all fantasies are a rescue fantasy. If I'm fantasizing, I want to be rescued from something and I want to be rescued to something. So I need to understand what I want to be rescued from and what I want to be rescued to. And this is one of those similarities. This is one of those places of commonness that husbands and wives can understand because everybody has fantasies and everybody at times want to be rescued from something. And then we want to be rescued to something. So that is a great point. Would you keep going as far as your found, you know, what are some of those other foundational principles in yeah. understanding sexual addiction? So the, the first thing I would say is sex addiction is not about sex. It's about how we've been using sex. Kind of like what I said about the little boy that discovered masturbation and now he's using it as his anxiety medication. And so we've got to get in there and figure out how we have been using sex and what are the triggers. Um, a lot of times men talk about the visual triggers that may lead them towards their acting out. But the reality is I believe the emotional triggers are much more powerful. It's my anxiety. It's my fear. It's my loneliness. It's my insecurities. Those are the things that many times can be working in very subtle ways. And I'm not even aware that I'm feeling those emotions because I'm so good at medicating myself that I'm moving towards acting out, not recognizing that my anxiety is what is the driver. So the first principle is what are the things that are driving me? Because it's not just about sexual desire. So sex addiction is not about sex. It's about how I've been using sex. The second principle is sex addiction is powerful because it's driven by a legitimate need. And the legitimate need is not for more sex. 
One of the things that we teach is sexual activity is never the cure to sexual addiction, just like drinking alcohol is not the cure for alcoholism. And so for those wives, and tragically, many wives have been told very painful messages that if they were just more sexual or more available to their uh, husbands, they wouldn't be sex addicts. But that absolutely has nothing to do with it. And so we have to understand that the legitimate need that has been sexualized is the issue that needs to be addressed. And one of my favorite definitions of lust is lust is the thirsty man craving salt. And I've modified that to say lust is the thirsty person drinking salt water. Because the issue is every time I drink the salt water, it appears to be fresh water. But what happens is I drink the salt water and not only does it not quench my thirst, it makes me thirstier. And that's what sexual compulsivity does. I go to the computer. I look at the pornography. I call my affair partner. I go to some place to act out. And each time I do that, going there thinking it's going to satisfy me. And each time it leaves me empty. In fact, one of the things I believe is in order for someone to act out, they have to begin to believe the lie. This time it will be different. You know, most of the men that I work with have an awareness that what they're doing is not going to satisfy them. You know, they go, they act out, they're left in despair, they're left in hopelessness. It wasn't satisfying. So in order to act out again, at some point, I have to begin to believe this time it will be different. And as soon as I believe that, it's opened the door for me to do it again. So the first principle is sex addiction is not about sex. It's about how I use sex. The second principle is sex addiction is powerful because it's driven by a legitimate need. The third principle is what I mentioned earlier. Early on, sex addiction chose me. And then at some point, I chose it back. One of the things to understand is when children are exposed to sexuality, there are two things that happen. The first thing is children become curious. It's part of who God created us to be. Curiosity is actually a very good thing. Curiosity is what sends us out to explore and to pursue that which we don't understand. And so curiosity is a natural reaction. If you show kids bugs, they become curious about bugs. If you show them the stars, they become curious about astronomy. And if a child is exposed to something sexual, they become curious about sexuality. One of the mistakes a lot of people make is I've heard men say, well, early on, I had an early sex drive. Mm -mm. You didn't have a sex drive as a child. You were exposed to something sexual and you became curious. Curiosity is one of the drives of sexuality. The other thing, though, that happens is when children are exposed to something sexual, it develops shame. They begin to believe that there's something wrong with them because of the curiosity. Um, the original shame message is there's something wrong with me. And then we ask the question, what's wrong with me? And how we answer that becomes the kind of uniqueness of our own shame message. But when a child is exposed to something that is beyond their comprehensive, but beyond their comprehension, they know intuitively they're not ready for it. And so they, they have this thought, something's off with this. I'm not ready for this. Something's off. And what they're left with is, well, what's off is me. There's something wrong with me. Well, what happens is when you combine curiosity with shame, it becomes this force of this is something I desire, but this is something I fear. And when we desire something and fear something, it creates chaos. Shame is what sends us into hiding that actually gives it more power. So part of the reality is when sex came into my life as a child, it created so much chaos and disruption. 
And what I often tell parents, it's not that the child was exposed to something sexual. It was that they were alone and they tried to figure it out by themselves. Now, I'm sure you get the question all the time, how do we protect our children? But the reality is at this point, our children are going to be exposed to something sexual, either through the media or through experimentation. The key is that we have conversations with them in such a way and that we are a safe presence so that when that happens, they are not alone in it. So the first, the third principle is early on sex addiction chooses me and the rest of it is, and then I choose it back. And that's what creates so much chaos and disruption as an adult. Thank you for joining us today on the Faithful and True podcast. This has been part one of a two-part series with Dr. Greg Miller and Tammy Gustafson uh, from the Betrayal Healing Conference. We hope that today's message has been helpful to you, and we look forward to bringing you part two in the next couple of weeks. In the meantime, if today's message has opened your eyes to the need to reach out for some support or some help, if you're dealing with sexual addiction or unwanted sexual behaviors, we invite you to visit faithfulandtrue.com, our website, where you'll find many resources and over 400 podcasts like this one. We also want to invite you to take a look at our Men's Journey Workshop information. There's a whole page on it, and there's even a, uh, a podcast dedicated to the most frequently asked questions that men have about the Men's Journey Workshop. We also offer the Women's Workshop and the Couples Journey Workshop. So we invite you to take a look at all of those resources at faithfulandtrue.com. In the meantime, we hope that this coming week for you will be a week that's filled with many blessings and great vision. <music>